I'm starting now. Okay, can you guys hear me? Okay. All right. Um, thank you for commenting with me on, on, the, on the Zoom. Once in a while, I have to do the Zoom just to make my life more doable. Um, so I'm going to do Q&A first. I think I'd like to, to change it that we have Q&A on Tuesday. Uh, works out better for me for various reasons, and I don't think that it makes much difference Tuesday or Wednesday. So we'll do it today, but I think going forward, we'll do it on uh, on Tuesdays. Okay, so without any further ado, Q&A. Um, <clears throat> should a person try to understand other from Jews' hashkafas, for example, Satmar's view on Zionism, or just stick to his own hashkafas? I mean, I don't think you have to understand the hashkafa of every Jew. I don't think you have to understand, you know, like study the hashkafa of Vitama ben Gvir or something. But the hashkafas of daily Israel maybe already are there to know the hashkafas of, of daily Israel. That, that I am, that I think there probably is some value. Even if you have your own base medrash, you know what base medrash you're coming from, but to know what they're, what they're saying and other about their medrash. Even Satmarov, Satmarov is also going. So even if we don't agree, we hear that it has a certain uh, it has a certain uh, value. Um, if somebody's really curious, there's an interesting sefer from Rav Yoel Khan. Rav Yoel Khan was the Lubavitcher of Bishchayzer, so he wrote a sefer where he gives the gist of the Satmar Rebbe Sashkopes and and why they why why they don't agree with him. So it actually is a valuable little sefer. It's available. It's available online. It's called Mane Mane Chacham. Now it's it's Chabad's response to Lubavitch. It's not Rav Soloveitchik's response to Lubavitch. It's not the Mizrahi's response to Lubavitch. But it has a lot of value because if you wanted to get the Sat Merbes Hashkafa out of Ayol Moshe, you'd have a very hard time. The Sat Merbes Hashkafa you could write on one page. Uh, he made a whole book out of it. So by the time you uh, you know you plow through all the pilpul and all the all the, all the madrashim and all that everything, you're not really gonna. He 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 gives you bekitzer nimrats. What the Satmar Rebbe held, and then he has a critique of it. So again, this is not all the opinions. You know, it's not Salvechik's response. I don't think Salvechik would even thought that the Satmar Rebbe's office called for a response. But nonetheless, it's interesting if somebody's interested. Um, you could buy it also in in in. in uh, you could buy it also in some places. So yeah, maybe it has value. I'll tell you also something that I saw very recently. Interesting. There's a fellow in, 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 um, I think he's an Eretz Yisrael. His name is Rabbi Manashi Yisrael Reisman. He's a mashpia in, in Bobov, I think. Or Bells. Maybe Bells. Or Bobov, I don't know. Whatever. He's a mashpia. He's a, and it's a Hasidist. That's, that's, uh, it's not Satmar, but it's certainly, uh, not so far away. And, he gave it. He, he gives. He's a very big kamachacham. He gives a lot of shirim all the time. They're they're all over the place in shirim. I used to have a balabas who uh, would listen, who get a shirim by the email every single day, and he was very enthusiastic about them. So anyway, this uh, this Reisman, he gave a gave a shmuz, and he said that 
that the Satmar of Sashkofa was that the, you know, the, the hash that the Yetzirah of Tzionis is very big and you have to run away from the Yetzirah of Tzionis. But he said, today, there's no Yetzirah of Tzionis anymore. And the whole Hashkafa of the Satmar of is not relevant. And, and anyway, at the end of the thing, he says that, you know, there's a possible, but Yeshu's Kainim, who's Kainis, Bishalayim, Vishmishanti, Biyodoi, Vyalodim, Vyalodim, is Masachakim, Berchavesel, there's an Abuah that old men and women will sit in the streets of Yushalayim and the children will play in the playgrounds. And uh, you can't look in our cell today and not see the Nebuahs being the sky. So this is a Psalmashpiyah who's like, uh, you know, close to Satmar and saying, but the Satmar Rebbe Sashkov was Yofa Be'itoy, but today uh, the, all of that's not again anymore. And you have to look at the at the Metzias and see the Nebuahs are being uh, being fulfilled. So that was pretty interesting to me that that's going on in the world. But uh, still, you know, if you're curious, uh, every, everything is a limbo. But certainly the Hashkafas of Daily Israel that are, that are closer to us than Satmar. Certainly worth knowing what they held. Well, the Chazanisha will go to the Biskrot held. It's a limut, certainly. Okay, right there. Is it important to learn history and specifically Jewish history? By the way, if somebody wants to speak up, you might guess. If it's, is it important to learn history and specifically Jewish history? Yeah, it's interesting. On the one hand, the Torah itself says, You have to look at to look back in history and we can see the Yad Hashem. On the other hand, you know, there's a Ramah in Shulchan Aruch of the Shabbos. The Ramah says that you're not supposed to read Sifei Melochim and Melchamei Seyem, books about the wars of kings, because it's just a bit of man and it's, uh, it's, it's on Shabbos, it's also. So it has no value. Was, even though the Ramah says you're allowed to read, the Ramah holds you're allowed to read the Ramah on, 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 on Shabbos, you're allowed to read a physics book on Shabbos, you're allowed to read a math book. But Sifei Melochim, that has no redeeming value, so that you don't have to read. So a lot of a lot of places can take out from there that even though you're allowed to read, you're, you're allowed to read science books and Shabbos, but you're not allowed to read history books because history is drawn by the I don't think that's shot in the Ramah. I don't think he was talking about history the way we understand it. I think he was talking about things like like the Song of Roland or something, you know, exploits of kings and their knights. They were just attacking the Roman Batalum. But history is a history is a chachma. And uh, if you don't know history, then how are you going to know what's a Kasvin and, and Bayar Dosher? You're going to come to Agamara, that, that you're not going to know what it is. So I, I think there's value. There's value in history. There's value in understanding the world. Understanding where we are, where, you know, where, where we are has to do with where we came from. I think also there's an emotional, there's, there's, you can't understand what's going on today in Eretz Yisrael. You can't appreciate Eretz Yisrael and the fact that there's, there's a state in, in Eretz Yisrael and the sovereignty and then Eretz Yisrael is flowering. You can't understand how significant that is. If you don't understand Jewish history, if you don't understand, you don't understand what Golos, what, what, what we experienced during Golos. You can't understand also the whole, uh, you can't understand where we are now if you don't understand the crisis of, of Judaism in the 19th century and modern, and, and, and modernity and all of these things. You know, if you don't learn it and know it and, and, and feel it, then you, then you look at the world today and you just take everything for granted and it, it lacks, it lacks a resonance. That it should have and ought to have, and you can't really appreciate it. So I, I think there's definitely value in in learning uh, learning history, especially the history that's relevant to us, the history of Kaiso. And uh, it's one of the ways we see Mamish Yad Hashem. We see the history of Kaiso and Kaiso's survival throughout the Golos. Very important. You see, daily so on history books, the morality Talmud uh, of David. Um, the last name's escaping me right now. It was it Talmud of Morale? He wrote, he wrote a history book. And if it's the guy's a Kalevi, he wrote history books. Daily Israel wrote history. 
somebody wrote Seder Elam and all these other, uh, also, also history books. Okay. Are there any history books in particular? No, no I don't know. In particular. Should Bachem act with an elevated level of refinement? For example, drinking from cups instead of bottles. I guess it means right. No, not shagalagi. There is a thing that a, that a yeshiva bacher is, is people look at yeshiva bacher as a kind of mini tamad chacham. That's how the world looks at you. The Ram writes in Hilchus Sayyidah Taira, in Perakei and Alachas of Kiddush Hashem, that a tamad chacham Part that one of the aspects of Kiddush Hashem is that a Tamar Chacham has to act in a way, behave in a way that people uh, respect, that people that, that people look at his behavior and they they say, oh, Torah refines a person, Torah elevates a person. So I'm still in my Chacham, but the truth is, every Ben Torah, every Ben Yeshiva, even even if even if you don't look at yourself as a Tamar Chacham, but the world outside they look at you as a, they look at you as a as a student of Torah, and a lot of you it's very very important to behave in a way that that uh, reflects that. In the Musi Yeshivas, they were very this. That they would dress in a way that was uh, that would command respect, and and um, they were very makpid on their on their that they should be put together and well dressed as much as as was possible given the tremendous poverty. Uh, in Slabotka, they were so much makpid that they shouldn't look disheveled, that they didn't take out their tzitzis by kriyashvat, because then you would have to dishevel your shirt. They were bachim. They didn't have a talus, so they didn't want to take their their. They didn't want to take the tzitzis out, so they didn't take the tzitzis out by tzitzis because uh, it would be disheveled. Well, it was hard for us to uh, to relate to that because America is a very different. You know, America is not the. It's culture specific. You know, in America, in America, even the you know professors could be disheveled and start a bizarre, but in, in in it has to do with the culture that you're in. So I don't know about drinking out of a bottle. I have no idea. But the, the, the basic idea that a Bentayra should behave and should dress in a way. I also feel that a Bentayra should behave. A Shiva guy should dress in a way. You know, he should dress in a way that's, that's dignified. That doesn't mean you have to wear a three-piece suit. But no, not to walk around in shorts and not to walk around in a t-shirt. It's not not uh, not appropriate for a Bentayra, 100%. Okay. Should one wear pants when playing basketball? Well, everything has. I don't think you have to wear. You know, I don't think you have to have a suit when you're going to the to the swimming pool either. It's uh, you know, when you're playing basketball, it has its own lavush. But the way, uh, I don't think pres- I don't think the president of the United States wears pants when he's playing basketball. I don't know how much I don't know how much basketball he plays, but uh, but if he did, okay. What's my opinion on learning Torah during class? Well, well, during this class, you, for sh- you should for sure learn Torah. Um, during other classes, secular classes. Look, you have to start, the point of departure is your parents are paying a lot of money, you should get a good education. And, and I also think you should get a good education. You know, that's where you, that's the value of coming to IU, is that you will get a good education besides getting Shiva education, you'll get another good, you'll get a good secular education. You're going to give a short shift. They're going to cut corners and you're not going to get, uh, you're not going to get proper education. In the end, it's going to come back to bite you. So I think you should put in the work to do well in college and to, uh, that's, uh, if you're going to just be, be, be learning all during class, uh, probably it's going to detract from that. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's, 
obviously it depends, you know, if you have professors that all they do is say what it, is just repeat what it says in the textbook, then you, you read the textbook, you already know what it says. You don't need to listen to the professor. So then, okay, if you learn from someone, then it's okay to learn. But if, if the professor is giving it, if there's value in listening to, if, if, if there's value in listening to the professor, then the stomach should listen to the professor and get the full value of this expensive education. Right. Rebbe okay. doesn't think Minos is a factor. It's just rude to be reading something else well, when someone was He knows that you're learning stuff, but it's probably uh, probably not good. But if it's in a way that's uh, not not uh, if you're learning in a way that's not obtrusive, that nobody uh, doesn't offend anybody. Again, I, I, my my the point of departure is not to do it. I don't think it's a mitzvah to be running after. I think you should be paying attention to class and doing well in class. But I, it certainly could be that there are classes. I mean, I didn't go uh, to YU, so I don't know. But I, I imagine even in YU there are classes that there's not so much there that the, the teacher's not giving over more than you have in the, in the textbook. And, and and some guys they they learn better from listening to the lecture, but some guys could could get all the material just from reading the textbook. So then they're going to class just a waste. Okay, so then I don't I don't have a problem. Is there a difference between learning? Inside and outside the base measures, like if you're reading in class, like maybe it'd be maybe it'd be worse than if you just don't show up to class for for a class for a class where Look, the, the point of the Q and A is not that I just take away your seichel yosha. You have to apply seichel yosha. You know, if it's going to be a chil Hashem or something, so don't do it. But if it's a if it's not going to bother anybody, it's not going to offend anybody, and you're not getting anything out of class, so then why not? You know, everything's with uh, everything's with common sense. Are there gnevas das issues if you're pretending to be paying attention but you're actually learning? No, I don't think so. What's the gnevis task? Just being polite. You pretend you pay attention. What's the gnevis task? Gnevis task is if you... Where's the gnevis task? Because he thinks you're doing one thing and you're doing something else. He didn't pay you to do something. You paid him. He didn't pay you. He paid you and you don't give him good service for what he paid. That's gnevis task. But you paid the professor. So I don't hear the gnevis task at all. Why is there so much machalikas in Torah? How do we explain this to people? Someone who attacks the authenticity, authenticity of Torah. Tell you a story. Rav Chaim Brisker was once together with the Chafetz Chaim. For some reason, they were together in the same town. For, and, the Chafetz, and, and Rav Chaim was davening Shemad Esrei by the, by the wall. Rav Chaim davened the Akhidus law. Rav Chaim was davening Shemad Esrei Mincha. And the Chafetz Chaim, and, and, and there were other people in the room, the Chafetz Chaim was was there, and somebody come, comes into the room, a Jew barges into the room, and, and he looks like very distressed and very upset, and he said, and, and this Jew says, how come so many, how come most of the machlekes and shas are never resolved? Most of the shilas and shas are never resolved. Most of the bias. So, Chaim was in the middle of Shemonestri, or maybe it was at the end, like he was about to take the three steps back, so he, like he made with his hand that they, they shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't, that they should, that they should wait. And then he, a few seconds later, Rav Chaim took the three steps back, and Rav Chaim said to him, most of the bias in Shas are yes resolved. Okay, so sh- shortly after that, the Chofetz Chaim was on the train going home, together with, he had somebody else with him, some other rope was accompanying the Chofetz Chaim home. And the Chofetz Chaim is like quiet the whole time, he's like thinking. He's lost in thought. And about, about an hour into the journey, the Chofetz Chaim turns to this other fellow and he says, Rav Chaim is a real guy. So apparently most of the bias and shas are, are resolved. But you know the the about machikas and about you have a lot of machikas. The Raman writes, the Raman writes in the Hakadoma to uh 
I think it's an Agdama the Pirishim Shnais. The Rama writes, well, it's an Agdama the Pirishim Shnais, or maybe it's in the Sefer and Mitzvahs. But the Rama talks about the, the Yudgimul Midash Hatar in the Dresses Band. So the Rama says that in Halochal Moshe Sinai, there's no Machaikis. There's only Machaikis and things that are learned out from Yudgimul Midash or, 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 or Svara and so on. Because that already is, involves human intellect. And in human intellect, there's always going to be differences of opinion. The Ram is divided. The Ram is Bechal Shittas Ram. Ram holds that everything in, everything in Shas, everything in Aloha, is going to be divided into two, into two classes. There are things that are, that either say Beferish and Posit, or they're Halacha Lomoshim Sinai, and they're not derived out of the Yudgimu Midas. And then there are Halachas that are derived from the Yudgimu Midas. And Yudgimu Midas, we derive Halachas, but it, it, it involves the, the mixture of Seichel Anoshi, human intellect, because we have to use the Yudimu Midas to extract the halachas out of the Torah. So the Ramah writes that in things that are halachal Moshimusina, there's no machaikis. It can't be any difference of opinion because halachal Moshimusina. But in the things that are learned out from the Yudimu Midas, so it, it involves human intellect. And by definition, by, by its very nature, anything that involves human intellect, there's going to be differences of opinion. And that's where we have machaikis. So then, Mr. Mufashim asks, there are some cases where you have machaikis and halachal Moshimusina. There are examples. Some of the Ram means that there might be isolated examples where there is a machlekes, what was the Messiah, there might be some confusion in the Messiah, and there could be a machlekes in Allah Chalamashe Misina. The Ram is not saying a statistical statement that it never happens. What the Ram means is that it doesn't happen very often because it's a different kind of machlekes by its very nature. A machlekes in Allah Chalamashe Misina is a, it means that there's some breakdown in the Messiah. Like uh, we're not became in Chaseris Misiris. The says we, we, don't, we lost the Messiah. At least the full Messiah of which words, which words in the Torah are are molevov and chosevov. That's a breakdown in the Messiah. That's not so common. It could happen. It's not there. I'm not saying that it, even though Ram says it doesn't happen, but he means it doesn't happen very often. But then there's something else. So you have Torah Shabalpe is the interface between Torah Shabiksav, and then we have the, the human intellect with the Yimumidah Shatar and the Dresses Bam and Svara and Darche Alimbud. And then, of course, it's a machlekes. Machlekes success in the sevas. Why it happened to be machlekes success in the sevas? Because the success in the sevas were using their intellect to understand the sources. And whenever people use their intellect, there's always going to be differences of opinion. It's not like it's verifiable. You know, some some sciences are verifiable, so you can have a you can have a reality check. But in Torah, there's no uh, there's maybe a reality check with the sources. You could think of rias, but rias is always rias lakan lakan say chaliyosher. So with anything that involves human intellect, there's going to be it's going to be machlekes. That's the beauty of Torah Shabbat. Is that it's 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 a it's a it's a it's it's a coming together of of seichel and Aishi, of human intellect together with the with the Torah and that's from that interface we have the whole ed- edifice of Torah Shabbat hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hundreds of thousands of svarim it's all uh, it, there's there's obviously human intellect there so if there's human intellect there's machlekes that's good for the that's good for the beauty of course the human intellect that you have to bring to bear is and that can't be das balabatim it has to be the human intellect of people who are steeped in the Messiah and the dake Limbo and the dake machshava. And, uh, you know, the, the Chazal say that Moshe Benin was shown, whatever, uh, whatever an experienced Talmud will be, Mechadish was told to Moshe Benin by Hasina. It doesn't mean, obviously, that Moshe Benin told that to Bnei Yisrael. But it means when Moshe Benin was Giloi, it was, it was Mizgalat and Kalatarikul, including the things that would later be, be taken out with, with, uh, with, with Yikimumidais and with Svara and called Masha Talmud Vosik Osir the Chadish, but only Masha Talmud Vosik Osir the Chadish. Hashimani wasn't, wasn't shown every klutz kasher that the Talmud would say, or every, every Svara that a Balabas might say. He was shown what, what, but with, within the, the realm of called Masha Talmud Vosik Osir the Chadish, it's all, it's all a chalak of Torah. Hey, Yaakov, you have your hand up.
Yes. Why why would we not pass in by a basketball then? Okay, that's why we don't pass in like a basketball because a chelik of is the Rebbeinu gave it over. To the that's what the malachim were matanim. Like we said, the malachim didn't want the Torah to be given to us. Why? Well, it's not a zero sum game. The Torah can be given to us, and the malachim can study Torah too. So the the Shmaitzer says no, but what the malachim objected to is that we should be the balabatim and Torah. The Shmuel gave us the Torah. Now it's up to the, us to decide, and halacha follows the way, the way we understand the Torah. And he gave us the had it, but, but then we we use that to understand to be might see to be might see halacha to be might see dvarashem's halacha, and the way we understand it, that's uh, where the balabat, the way we understand it, that's the way the halacha is. Okay, how should we be trying to come more graphic? How should we misyachas the stories of Dalim, such as of Achan and Wasserman, among others, made an active choice to stay with the Kehilis in Europe, even though they knew it meant certain death? I do not think that that was the norm. People did not run back to certain death. Dalim Yisrael ran away. Ravon Kotler ran away. The Pan of Israel ran away. Samarov ran away. Everybody ran away. Of course they ran away. Achan um, went back to Europe before the war. They knew this war clouds on the horizon. I don't believe Rabbi Khan knew that he's going to his death. And Rabbi Khan had family, he left his family back in Branovich, so Rabbi went back. But I, 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 don't, I, don't, I find it hard to believe that Rabbi Khan went back knowing he was going to die. I can't, I can't say for sure. But that was certainly not the expectation. That was certainly not the norm. By the way, you know, history is not always right. You know, things that people say, you know, a lot of stories that everybody knows, and they just didn't happen. They weren't so. Rabbi is a case in point. Everybody knows that Rabbi Khanan went back to, went back to, to Europe and he was in Kovna Ghetto. And when the Jews were led out of Kovna Ghetto to the ninth fort, what was called, that was where they, they, they massacred the, the, the Jews of Kovna. Rabbi Khanan gave an impassioned speech that they have to have pure machshavas. They shouldn't be mafagal the carbon because they're going to be a carbon. And if they're going to have impure machshavas, the carbon will be piggle and they're going to be machaper on their brethren in America. So famous mice that everybody knows. People who've checked it out, I know somebody did a lot of research who's there. And, and it's not true. The story never happened. Rebbe was not killed on the ninth fort. Rebbe was killed before the Nazis ever got the government. Rebbe was killed by the, by the Lithuanian fascists who arrested him, and then he was never heard from again. So there's a lot of things that everybody knows, and the fact that everybody knows that it's so doesn't mean that it's so. Okay. Rabbi. Yeah. In light of this, how should we relate to Gedolim stories, knowing that some of them may be fabricated? With great question. With great question. And and that's why not all stories have equal weight. You know, stories that are, there are stories that you have to look at the source. The stories that were written by, is it a first-hand source? Is it a second-hand source? A lot of stories, uh, you know, it depends. Some stories are more reliable and some stories are not reliable. Now, the story about Rechon in the ninth fort was came from a Notoriously not reliable source. So, okay, it's not true. Um, other sources, you know, where Chaim Velazhin writes about the going, uh, that's a very reliable source. So, that's a, that's a first hand source. So, it's different. Uh, yeah, you have to know where it's coming from. And there's also, there is a phenomenon you should always be aware of that stories change in the telling, even, even without any. Even with the best of intentions, unless a person has a photographic memory, a very unusual memory, well, most people, when they tell over a story, 
the story changes with every retelling. And this is something I've seen countless times. A story I heard together with somebody else, I heard a story. And then that somebody else told over the story again to somebody, told the story over. And I was there also in the retelling. And I, and I, and he, the way he told it over is not the way we both heard it. It's, it's became, and, and usually the, usually the dynamic is it becomes more of a story. With the retelling, it becomes more storified, um, more dramatic, more storified. It's just, that's the way people remember. There's a lot of studies about this, psychologists have studies. People remember things as a story and it gets more storified with every retelling. So you have to, uh, even if there's a kernel of truth, but they have to, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a professor at, I don't know if he still teaches in YU or not, Dr. Schneer Lyman. Is he still teaching in YU? Anybody know? He's a historian, very brilliant man. Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. I think he teaches in the graduate school. He's a, yeah, he, he, I think he has a photographic memory, he has an extraordinary memory. And anyway, he, he writes these little monographs where he, something picks his, you know, picks his interest and he, and he does a monograph and then he studies it. So he has a very fascinating monograph. There's a story that Rev. Cook told over. I'm not going to tell you the whole story. You could look up Rev. Schneider. It's on, online, but Rev. Cook told over a story in the name of his father, Willie Adaris, who was the Rav of Yishalayim, about a certain person who was born, who became a Meshumid, and then he did Shuvah before he died, and, and, he, and he, the, the Rav who visited him before he died, he told them the whole story about when he was born. His father was a Talmud, was a follower of Yaakov Emden, and by the bris, Rav Yaakov Emden gave his father a bracha, that the child should be the opposite of Avianus and Ibschitz. And Avianus and Ibschitz, they told us to heard about it, and Avianus and Ibschitz said, Amen. So he said, So what's this? No wonder I became a Mishumid because both Avianus and Ibschitz and Avianus and Ibschitz gave me a bracha, I should be the opposite of Avianus and Ibschitz. So anyway, the story. So, so Rabbi Dr. Lyman decided to research, is the story true? And, and he researched it. I wouldn't know where to begin, but he knows where to begin. He researched it. And he found out that the story is not true, but it has a kernel of historical truth. And there was a real story. The real story was not like this. And the Venus and Ibschitz and the Yaakov Emden went out of the real story. The real story is also fascinating. But not such a storified story. But it's a, it's a fascinating historical incident around which grew this, uh, this story about the Venus and Ibschitz and the Yaakov Emden and the Brocha and so on and so forth. Doesn't mean they're of cook fabricated the story. Doesn't mean that the Adaris fabricated the story. It's the story in the many, many retellings that it must have undergone. It became historical. So that's, uh, in general, you have to be cautious about uh, stories. Yeah, Hasidic stories are also altogether notorious. Samarab, we've talked about Samarab before. Samarab was notoriously skeptical about Hasidic mysis. They said the Samarab, they once asked him about the, about Hasidic mysis. And he said, well, I'll tell you a mysis that there was a, there was a band of thieves and they would, they would hide out in a cave by day and then they would go out marauding. And then they, one of the thieves was, was a cook and he would stay behind and cook for the other thieves. And then they would come back and they would share the spoils among them all, including the cook. So one day they all went out to do their, their robbery, their, their robbing and pillaging. And the cook stayed behind and the cook said to himself, you know, it's not fair. Here I am slaving over a hot fire all day and they look glad and have a good time. And why should uh, I, I just get the same share as everybody else? So I'm going to, he decided he's going to put poison in the food and he's going to keep all the treasure for himself. Meanwhile, the thieves, they go out and say, you know, we put our lives on the line. We, we face all of the dangers. The cook sits in comfort in the cave and we have to share with him. After supper tonight, we'll kill the cook and we'll take his share. So they come back to the cave 
and they eat the sup, they eat supper, they kill the cook, then they all die from the poison. And the Samrov concluded and he said, and who was left to tell the story? Like who told the story exactly? There's all these chassidish and who exactly told the story? Like who was there who told over the story? So um so anyway, he was very skeptical about stories. You have to be skeptical about stories. Some stories are better than others. We have to check the sources. Okay, next question. Does I do, do I think the should Revi? That being said, does Revi have a particular one story that Revi knows or thinks to be accurate and likes very much in the realm of good old stories? Not accurate stories, but again, the, the story is more reliable the more the the the, the, few, the fewer hands through which it's gone. So. And and also some is the writer. Yeah, writers are more reliable. Writers who do more research, writers who are less reliable. Sometimes you can smell. You can smell a book that the stories are are storified. It's my salah. And uh, others, uh, it seems to be more historical. More uh, there was more more research was was done. But it's always. Does, uh, does Rabbi have I, a I'm sure I told you the story about the about the making of a goggle with my 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 piece in the making of a goggle. I told you the story. My my contribution to the making of a god or my non-contribution. Some of you have heard it. Who by show of hands, I don't want to repeat myself. By show of hands, who heard the story from me? Okay, so I'll tell you for those who weren't there, maybe it's it's, it's relevant. So this Rabbi Kamenetsky, he wrote this book, The Making of a Godel, and he prided himself, rightfully so, that he all the stories he researched and he and he and he took notes and he really put the he made sure that everything the dates were right and he he put a lot of work making it as, as accurate as he as he could. Yaakov Kamenetsky held that everything has to be Emma's. So he has there a story. He got into a lot of trouble for the story. He has a story there that when Ivan Kotler was was a bocher and he was engaged. You heard the story or you didn't hear the story? Just by again, by another, another show. Maybe now by now you're reminded. It's a very unforgettable story. Some of you heard it, some of you not. So I'll tell you there. So anyway, when Ivan Kotler was engaged, to the daughter of Mr. Zalman. And the Shatran was the altar of Slobodka. So the altar, so, so the story goes, he writes in the book that Aaron Kotler wrote a letter to his fiance, Mr. Zalman's daughter. And Mr. Zalman saw the letter and he didn't like it. And he went to the altar to complain. And the altar said to him, I didn't say he's a tzaddik. He has other milas. But one day he's going to be so film as and film kite, I think the story goes. Anyway, he said, I didn't say he's a tzaddik, but he has other mileage, but one day he's going to be very film. So that's the story that's printed in the book. Yeah, around the story was a whole, it was a whole by Yitzhaku. It's one of the reasons why the people were crusading uh, against the book. And everybody assumed that what, what was the letter? What was this letter that the Ryan wrote to his fiance that got Mrs. Zalman upset? So the whole world was assumed that it must have been a love letter. So, and I knew that that's not that it wasn't a love letter because I I know this I knew the story from from Mishnez Rebetzin. I heard the story from Mishnez Rebetzin uh, thirty years, forty years ago. I don't know how many years ago. Forty years ago, probably. I heard the story from Mishnez Rebetzin. The same without the business about what the Alta said that he's gonna that he's I didn't say he's a tzaddik. That part she didn't know. But the story that Ravarin wrote his Kala letter and Rebbe Zam didn't like it, didn't like the letter that I heard from from Rebetzin Kalta, and it wasn't a love letter. I don't know if Mrs. Zahman would have cared that Ravarin wrote his Kala love letter, but it was a, what it was was that he wrote her a letter and he wrote her books that he recommends she should read. Russian literature, Pushkin, and then Ravarin is a book. I read the Russian literature. So that makes sense. The story makes sense. So anyway, so one, one day I, I, 
I called up Rabbi Kamenetsky and I told him that I have the other half of the story. If he would have put in the whole story, I think he would have, they would have been less angry because that, that already everybody knows that Varna is the old Yeshiva Bochum read, read the Russian literature in those days. So, so I told him a story. Okay, so it was too late to put it in the book, maybe just as well. So, but then later I saw in a journal that this, that Rabbi Kamenetsky wrote an, wrote an article and he writes in the article that he, about this story, and, and that he got a call from Rabbi Shulman from YU, who told him this hashlama to the story, and if he would have known, he would have put it in the book. And then he starts to write, and he says, and how did Rabbi Shulman know the story? So I had told him, I heard the story from Rabbi Sinkotler, but that he didn't remember. So he said, he's trying to, to try to figure out, how, how would I have known the story? So he says, well, probably, probably, Rabbi Shulman's grandparents, Rabbi Kamenetsky knew my grandparents. He said that Rabbi Shulman's grandparents lived in Bar Park. I know that Rabbi Shulman's grandparents lived in Bar Park, and Ravaran lived in Bar Park. So probably Rabbi Shulman's grandparents heard the story from Ravaran, and that's how Rabbi Shulman knows the story. So here you have a person who really worked very hard and took a lot of heat to get all the stories right and accurate and, and as accurate as possible. But, uh, you know, he didn't remember this prat. So this prat, he was mashlim from what he, uh, what he uh, assumed must have been the, so. That's the way it goes, you know. This is a, and this is a, this is already somebody who's really trying hard that the story should be accurate. So, and, and a lot of people aren't trying so hard. So that's how it happens. Stories change with the telling. Doesn't mean stories aren't true, but just have to take them with a certain, uh, you know, with that understanding. Look, it's not, it's not less than what you read in the newspapers, but what you read in the newspapers is mostly not true, also. So, it's, uh, th- things get people, people filter whatever they. It's not necessarily out of malice. People filter what they hear to what they're expecting to hear, right? and people remember what they're expecting to remember. So stories get the stories change. Okay, what do I think should be? Do I think that there should be communal censorship? For example, almost all rabbanim would say that one should have censorship in the home, such as with technology and maybe certain even certain activities. But does Rebbe think it's the role of a community rav to say these books are also to read because they have kfira? Or is it for the family to decide? What would a Hagdara look like? Okay, interesting. So I'll tell you, a priori, you know, I don't think we have an a priori objection to book banning because, you know, Rishayim banned books. There were books that the Rishayim thought were objectionable and they, they asked them, Murray Nebuchim, a lot of Rishayim banned the Murray Nebuchim. Obviously, that's, that lesson can be taken to two different uh, directions. But the uh, Rishonim did ban books. The Maral banned the Marinayim. So there's a whole we have a there's a pedigree to 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 to, to banning books. And I, I don't think it's not. I don't think it's outside the writ of a rov or a tamshacham or, or a leader or a leader to tell his talmidim or his followers that these books are you know there is a din of like not to read sifrei minus and a rov is entitled to to paskin at this book. He doesn't think that it's a book that you should be reading. The problem nowadays is twofold. First of all, it's usually counterproductive. Now, I don't know how productive it was by the morale, but, but today, book bans are mamish. The only thing that book bans do is that they promote the sale of the book. That's, you can know, that everybody will tell you. you know, if a book is banned, there's, there's no better uh, promotion. The book will sell out. Um, so, and it's never, people don't take it too kindly. It's just Ruba the Ruba. I can't say there's no exceptions, but Ruba the Ruba is Yotsu Schara Be'Seba. So that's number one. Number two, this is a messy thing, but the fact is, 
the process is, is like a lot of other things, the process becomes hijacked by Kanoim. A lot of times the book is banned because some Kanoi took it in his head that this is a bad book. And then he goes and he makes a tumult about it. And he, and he, and he does, goes cherry picking. And then he brings his cherry picked uh, things that could be, you know, if you just read, if you just only read the things that he picked out. So maybe it makes a bad impression. And he goes to Rabbanim and Rabbanim really have other things to do. And they, but he schleps out from them for them. They should sign his, his iser. And, and, and sometimes the signatures are not authentic, but even if they are authentic, it's not like these Rabbanim, this is, this is what they're, where they're, where their life is. You know, they're busy banning this book. It's some guy who's made it his life business that he's going to get out. He's going to schlep out of iser from this book. And you only see the Rabbanim who signed. All the Rabbanim who said, no, I don't want to sign. You don't see there. You don't, you don't know about them. So the whole process has been corrupted. And, and maybe that itself needs to be addressed. You know, how do, how do you swallow that? That it, that it could be corrupted. But that's the Mashiach. Well, all these bookmans, it's really, uh, it's, it's, the whole, the whole thing is not, I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a phenomenon that Rabbanim would really be well, we would be better served if we, if we, if we, if we avoided that. I think it's still true that if a Rav has the trust of his dealer and he thinks that certain safer maybe is not appropriate, he can tell us, he can tell him, but it's very fraught. It's very fraught. This banning. Nothing to do with censorship. You know, the, the question began with censoring the internet. That's a whole different story. That has nothing to do with this. But um, book banning is usually not worthwhile. Okay. Every boy today, question, every boy today is expected. Oh, it's getting late. Every boy today is expected to go to yeshiva. And Rebbe spoke about the expectation that the terror should become Tandik HaChomim. How is it that this wasn't the expectation for the past hundreds of years where only the top boys went to yeshiva? Is it because of money? Yes. That's the answer. Yes. That's the answer. People didn't have the means. But the people was a luxury. The, who could afford to send their sons off to yeshiva? Only, only uh, either rich people or, or Rabbanim did it because that was, you know. But that was a big part of it. 100%. This whole notion that we have universal education, that's because uh, we have the luxury we're able to do it. Okay, what do I think about the Hashkafas of Rabbi Vigdan Miller? Why am I even going here? Okay, Rabbi Vigdan Miller. I guess it's relevant to somebody the questions here. Um, look, Rabbi Vigdan Miller, if he lived in America. Florida, he was an American born. He, he went to YU. So, uh, so why he's a YU product. Went to YU. And then he went to yeshiva in Europe. And he, his, his formative years, he grew up in America when it was a melting pot. It was a melting pot. And Jews were enthralled to, um, you know, a, a professor commanded, a professor in Brooklyn College commanded much more respect than a, than a Rav, even by fellow Jews. So he was fighting against, this, you know, going swimming upstream, fighting against this, this, the, the zeitgeist. And he was Olam Dado and Abal Musser, but he, he had a very combative style and a very combative Hashkoff, and that's how he fought. That's how he was able to swim upstream with this combativeness. It's not everybody's cup, it's not my cup of tea, that's for sure. It's not my that, that combativeness, and scientists don't know what they're talking about, and, and, it's, uh, you know, and, and it's being the Zalzal and anything that's not, not ours. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's not, my, not my flavor, that's for sure. But he was certainly Olam Chashif. That's no question. He was on a He was become a chacham. But uh, different strokes for different folks. Okay. Fine. That's it. That's it.